welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Hello and welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, episode number 66 for Wednesday, May 24th, 2017. I'm your host, Ken Gagney. On today's episode... By promoting the opportunities for individuals who want to provide what I may think of as better representations of people, it doesn't necessarily mean that I have to shut down what other people do. That was Arvid Nelson, former archivist at the Charles Babbage Institute at the University of Minnesota. I'll be speaking with him and current librarian Amanda Wick in today's episode. Two summers ago, I and former Polygamer guest Sabriel Masson visited the Charles Babbage Institute, where Arvid gave us a two-hours exclusive behind-the-scenes tour. We were fascinated by everything we saw, and I'm pleased to be able to share some more of the Charles Babbage Institute with you on today's episode. This is the third academic episode of Polygamer in a row, and I've enjoyed the opportunity to take this scholarly look at the culture and medium of video games. Perhaps this has been coinciding with the end of the academic semester, where I've been inundated with student essays and papers to grade. But now that summer is here, I'll try to take a more fanciful look at video games in future episodes. Speaking of which, I want to let you know about an upcoming change to Polygamer. This July, the show turns three years old. It's gone by so quickly, and we've interviewed so many people on the show and shared so many stories about such topics as cosplay, toxic masculinity, social justice, voice acting, and more. There are still more stories I want to share on Polygamer, and I look forward to doing so for years to come. But I'm finding that we've hit a lot of the key topics that I set out to address when I launched the show three years ago, and that it's no longer as urgent for me to rush to get certain topics out there. Polygamer is still as necessary as ever. We launched a month before Gamergate, and right now it's six months after the presidential election, where hate speech and crimes are more common than ever. It's important that shows like Polygamer remind us to take a step back and take a look at what it is that divides us and what it is, more important, that brings us together. And I want to continue bringing you those stories, but at a more leisurely pace. And so, starting with July 2017, Polygamer is going to a monthly format. I know that's pretty unusual in today's day and age of podcasts that air at least weekly, but given the research nature of Polygamer and how rarely we're able to speak extemporaneously about what games we've played in the past week, I think Polygamer is one show that would fit well with a monthly format. And I hope that you'll stay subscribed and you'll be able to enjoy our hour-long episodes on the second Wednesday of every month. Still, I know you may be disappointed that the stories will not be coming as fast and furious as they traditionally have, and so here's a bonus story for you. 2M8DLE4VCLJ5MTA. That's a Steam code for the game Kentucky Route Zero, which I backed on Kickstarter years ago, and is one of the most creative narrative point-and-click adventure games you will encounter in today's day and age. Now with the administrivia out of the way, let me introduce you to this week's episode about the Charles Babbage Institute. You can find the Charles Babbage Institute online at www.cbi.umn.edu. That link, and links to all the many academic resources mentioned in this week's episode, can be found at polygamer.net. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, episode number 66 for Wednesday, May 24th, 2017. Today, I'm delighted to bring you not one, but two renowned guests all the way from Minneapolis. Joining me today is Amanda Wick, the archivist at the Charles Babbage Institute for the History of Information Technology at the University of Minnesota. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Ken. How's it going today? Good. How are you? 
Great. How long have you been the archivist at the CBI? I took over um, after your other esteemed guest, Arvid Nelson, um, left CBI back in July of last year. So I've only been here for about a year. Well, congratulations on your pending one-year anniversary. Thank you. And as you alluded, joining us is your predecessor in that role, Mr. Arvid Nelson, who is now the Rare Books and Manuscripts Librarian at the Bridwell Library in the Southern Methodist University of Dallas, Texas. Hi, Arvid. Hello. How are you today? I'm doing great. So you and I had the opportunity to meet two years ago when I visited UMN, and you gave me a tour of the facility because we had been communicating for years before that, ever since you began accepting my submission of Juiced GS, a print magazine that I distribute every quarter, all about the old Apple II computer, and you graciously accepted that collection into the archives of the CBI. Oh, it was great to get that and add that to the collection, and it was it was really a pleasure to, to put a face to the name when you were able to visit. Ditto, and it was such an honor for you to know precisely where in that enormous archive of yours, exactly where JuiceGS was. You rolled the shelves aside, walked down the aisle, pulled it out, and there were the magazines that I had not seen since I mailed them to you years ago. Yep. Very cool. So, Arvid, are you, you're no longer with the CBI, but you used to be the archivist that Amanda now is? Yes. So I started as archivist in oh April of 2007, and I was here until the well June 30th of 2016, with with one brief intermission where I was in another department. So yeah, almost um, almost 10 years. Wow, a decade of service. That is phenomenal. It's rare nowadays for anybody to stay somewhere that long. Yeah, and actually, I should say, um, I I had the great opportunity of working with Amanda. She was able to start about a month and a half prior to my leaving. So she actually has a little bit more experience with the collection than she even said. So we we actually had a chance to overlap and work together for a while. Great. And today I happen to be chatting with both of you while you're each at the CBI in Minnesota. Yep. All the way up from Dallas just for this podcast. I appreciate your I appreciate it. So, Amanda, tell me a little bit about the Charles Babbage Institute. It says on your website that you are dedicated to preserving the history of information technology and promoting and conducting research in the field. There are lots of other museums about computer history, such as the Computer History Museum of Mountain View, California, the Living Computer Museum in Seattle, Washington. What makes CBI unique? Well, I think a few things make CBI unique. I mean, first of all, we are... You know, some of these institutions that you mentioned are museums versus archives. Um, And with museums, they tend to collect, you know, single isolated objects, um, you know, one-offs and whatnot. And, you know, from an archival perspective, we try to get um, a larger context. So instead of, I guess you could say, a museum curates exhibits which provide a narrative about the history of computing. Whereas we collect, have collections that provide the narrative and we don't do any interpretation on our own, you know. I would say that's like the top difference between us and CHM and some of the other institutions that you mentioned. But going a little bit further, all of those institutions tend to focus um, much more so on the technology than we do on the actual machines, on the actual software. Um, that's not something that CBI focuses on overly. Um, we actually attempt to document the history, but also with a very strong lens towards some of the social and cultural aspects of technology and computing. As Arvid once told me before I started, you know, this is not about the boxes and the wires. This is about the people 
behind the technology and also the people who use the technology as there's a lot of interplay back and forth between those between the two. I would say we're also an academic research institution, so we get a lot more of the historians and the scholars than uh, the museum folks do. As Amanda said, being part of an academic institution, there's a lot more direct contact with students and classes as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, it's kind of fun. We get to go out and we actually teach classes. We teach undergraduate and graduate students how to conduct historical research. You know, sometimes they get bitten by the history bug and they end up going into fields and you know, areas of research that they never thought they would just because they took a class with us. Sometimes they dare to go to library school as well (laughs) and join our profession. So it's always pretty exciting for us. So you mentioned that your focus isn't so much on the technology as a concrete object. If I were to go to those other museums, I would see tons of big iron from old machines. I would find floppy disks, cassette tapes, source code. I know how to archive all those concrete things, but how do you archive the social and cultural implications of technology? What what sort of items do you have in your archive? So the archives of CBI has approximately 260 or so collections of personal, corporate, and organizational records, um, which comes out to about over 5,000 linear feet, so almost a mile end-to-end of paper records, artifacts, publications, and AV materials. So within that, you know, we've got the stories of people like Margaret Fox, we've got the stories of companies like the Control Data Corporation and the Burroughs Corporation. Um, We also have the full records of the ACM. So that's kind of how we endeavor to look at some of the social aspects of computing. Um, You know, these are not just their patents, these people's patents, um, or the official records. There's also, you know, there's a lot of fun stuff, like their research notebooks from when they were in university, Um, some of their class lecture notes for lectures that they may have given. Um, In some cases, we also have, you know, just draft presentations that you may have seen at, say, like a TED Talk or something like that. Um, So that's always... That provides, I would say, a lot more context to the stories that are at museums than you would find at the museums themselves. In addition to those things, you get to see more about the personalities. Mm -hmm. I mean, one example that I I really liked to work with when I was teaching students is the Edmund Berkeley papers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he was a very thoughtful and provocative individual within the history of computing and ACM. And you you see his, the notes that he wrote to himself, you know, pro and con lists about decisions he would make, including leaving Prudential. Um, You saw correspondence between him and people with whom he shared passions and with whom he passionately disagreed about things. So it's, it's not the published record, the polished image that individuals and corporations want to present. It's, it's all of the the nuts and bolts and the, the the fighting and the passions that go behind creating those things. Yeah, so it's not always pretty. I mean, it's a warts and all <laughs> type of look at the historical record. It's a good record. way of putting it. Definitely warts and all. And does any of that history overlap with the history of electronic entertainment and computer and video games? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the newest areas that we're collecting in um, is actually the computer graphics industry. So that's, you know, it's foundational for special effects and the gaming industry. And I would say that it's a really good entree point for us to move into gaming um, and to start collecting materials, 
not just about um, the gaming industry itself, but the people who are involved with gaming, both as developers, you know, social media forum mediators and administrators, um, actual gamers, and then some of the offshoots um, of gaming. So materials of like people who are doing podcasts like yourself, people who are running listservs or zines um, about the industry. You know, we're curious about that. That provides a really cool lens and look into the gaming industry that I don't think you're going to find at a lot of other places. So um, it's not an area that we have a strong collection yet. But it's something that I would like to get into. And if there is anybody who is willing to contribute to our archive um, in this field, you know, we'd love to talk to them. I'd love to hear more about what they do and the kind of materials that they that they have on hand. So it's definitely somewhere we want to be. And when you collect all this information, do you have any hopes for how it's going to be used by researchers? Well, we really don't have... Um, hopes and hopes and dreams for how it's being used. Um, it's really interesting, actually. I've had everybody from like a small local band who contacted me to use an image that they said looked like dystopian future. And it's really just a picture from the 1950s of a guy at a huge computer terminal. But it's really that darkly lit. And so it looks, it does look kind of menacing, but they wanted to use that for their album cover. That was one way that people used it. I've gotten calls from producers uh, both commercial and independent um, films to use either our artifacts or images from within our collection. We've also had a variety of scholars that come in and they want to, they use our materials for historical research as published in books, um, academic journals. And it's, it's really interesting that, you know, over the last year or so, I've seen people come through with a lot of multidisciplinary research efforts. So we had one woman who came in and she's interested in the human form and movement and how that's portrayed in popular culture. And so she was really interested in some of our graphics work and how the female form especially was represented in early animation. And then, you know, we also have a kind of a resident researcher who's fascinated by magnetic storage memory drums. And he has probably gone through over a hundred boxes just researching what is apparently a somewhat contested and scandalous field of development that I had no idea about. So. You know, it's a little bit all over the map. So it's always fun to speak with researchers. I, I would say that I think we don't have, as, as a librarian and archivist, um, as a profession, I don't think we want to prescribe how people access and interpret materials. We want to promote their accessibility and use. Mm -hmm. So that things are used are more important than how they're used. And one of the things that I think... Um, more people should be aware of is that every archive, by their very nature of being these large warts and all messy things that you know Amanda described, is that they contain a lot of things that may be surprising. So, you know, CBI's collections of corporate records contain a lot of advertising. Those have been used by classes looking at uh, visual arts and visual representation. There's the rhetoric of advertising. I think that Archival collections have opportunities for broad and unexpected use and interpretation. Mm -hmm. In addition to all those corporate notes and advertising and personal uh, memoranda, you also have a vast collection of oral histories. Is that a series of interviews with the founders of this industry? Um, in some sense, um, it, it's definitely a collection of interviews um, that are with people who are foundational. 
either as innovators themselves or as students of the history of computing. Um, those oral histories are conducted by kind of, so CBI is both a special, a special library as well as an archive. But in addition to that, we have a collaborative relationship with the School of Engineering, um, who also has employees here at the CBI. And they actually run most of our active research, including the oral history projects. And so a lot of those are basically obtained through grant-funded research projects that are defined um, by the research interests of our director and associate director. So we have a strong collection of women in computing, and that basically provided the foundation for some of the publications that they've put out titled Gender Codes. You know, it's not just people who are foundational in the field. Um, it's a very, we take a very focused and nuanced approach to how we locate oral histories. Are those oral histories then made available on your website as MP3s and transcripts? Yes. Mostly as transcripts. I mean, mm -hmm. One of the things about the CBI Oral History Project is they have a very, they really seek to create research grade oral histories. So they're, they're heavily researched in advance. They try not to ask the kinds of questions that you can find through another source. And they are, they are edited. Mm -hmm. So the primary format is in edited transcripts. The source recordings have been saved, but in, in many cases, they were restricted by the participants. Some, gosh, maybe five or six years ago, we got uh, special grant funding to digitize some of those. Um, we were concerned about the long-term viability of, of audio cassette tapes and wanted to have them made available. Unfortunately, the grant would only allow us to digitize recordings that were allowed to be made publicly accessible. So we did go through and find which ones we could, and we had 50 re recordings uh, digitized one year and 50 the next. So those are available on um, the University of Minnesota Library's website as well. My friend Kevin Savitz has been recording hundreds of interviews every year with uh, people who have worked at all aspects of the computer and gaming industry, from early developers at Atari or CompuServe, etc., and then releasing those as podcasts. He is almost indiscriminatory in who he interviews because so many of these people are starting to fade away, and he just wants to ingest and distribute so much of this content as soon as he can. How do you decide who to interview uh, if you can only you know do so many a year how do you decide who becomes part of the archive once they come in then we aggressively work to preserve them and make them available but as for conducting them and kind of making that selection that's really left up to the to the researchers themselves i think that they largely rely on um, some of the contacts that they have through professional organizations and just kind of, you know, personal relationships and word of mouth. And what's really interesting about these oral histories is they're not focused on kind of the luminaries, a lot of them. They're focused on kind of just the average people that are working within the computer industry um, or working within, you know, the government. So it's, it's really, an, it's a more, I guess, universal look at the history of computing as opposed to just through the eyes of, you know, some of its more iconic members because after all you know the how Tim Berners-Lee looks at or Steve Jobs looks at computers is going to be very different from Joe Schmo who just works in you know Dell's manufacturing plant 
putting together circuit boards. So I think a distinction that you just helped me make was that these oral histories are being contributed to the archive as opposed to being conducted by the archive. Is that correct? Yep, absolutely. So for example, I have an audio interview recording with Bob Bishop, who was the co-founder of Apple's R&D division back in the 70s, along with Steve Wozniak. Uh, Mr. Bishop passed away a few years ago, but I still have that recording. How would I go about making that available to the Charles Babbage Institute, if they even wanted it? Yeah, if you wanted to donate it, uh, you would certainly talk to me about that. And we do have a process, series of process, processes sorry, for releasing that kind of information. So it's not just about, you know, having the interview is great, but we also need permission from either the subject of the interview or depending on what kind of permissions you may have exchanged with the interviewee, um, we have to figure out how we can make it available. And even if we can make it available, we have a, a number of oral histories actually that were conducted very early on by staff members of CBI that are just, we can't, they're a very important people and we simply can't make them available mm-hmm. because there was never an explicit permission slip signed, which really, really stinks. Oh, that's awful. I'm sorry to hear that. Thanks. Yeah. So I think there's a, there's a couple of ways that we do. I, I would say because of the complex makeup of CBI, as we said, we, we are half library and half research center. There are a number there. I would say the base CBI oral histories are in fact done by CBI, just not the library side. Um, they're done by the academics who are employed by the uh, College of Science and Engineering as opposed to the library. So we are able to work very closely with how they get those materials into the archive. But we do have a number of collections that have come from external sources. Uh, one that came in a couple of years ago was called the Computer Educators Oral History Project, uh, which had video and audio um, and transcripts of, of interviews with a lot of computer educators. They do have those online, but they didn't see that being a long-term project, so they wanted to get it into CBI's hands because CBI does promote long-term preservation and access. And as Amanda suggested, in addition to receiving um, the original and edited uh, audio, video, and transcripts, uh, they also gave us the permission forms that they had drawn up, uh, which were created... Uh, specifically to say that they could be given to an archive for accessibility later on. So that was an important part of that transfer. So I'm thinking about your access to these individuals who are being interviewed and to all the other kinds of material that you collect. Here in Boston, we are the home of MIT, Infocom, VisiCalc. In Seattle, you have Microsoft and Nintendo, Silicon Valley, Apple, and Google. Why is the Charles Babbage Institute in Minneapolis? Well, it's sort of a complex history. I would say that uh, the easy story is that it was started by a group of computer industry leaders who had an interest in history, but they were actually located in California. When they sought a partnership with a university, again, to have the benefit of the long-term institutional commitment to materials, they actually conducted a broad nationwide survey and had requests for proposals from a number of universities. And ultimately, the University of Minnesota won that process. I think it helped that one of the 
the founders or the founder of um, the Charles Babbage Foundation and Institute, Erwin Tomasz, uh, was a graduate from the University of Minnesota. So there was some connection there. But one of the things that I think gets overlooked is that although the locus of the computer industry is today very visibly in Silicon Valley and um, you know, again, to some extent in Boston, I think I think that Boston doesn't shine as brightly as it did once upon a time as well in comparison to, you know, the, how Silicon Valley has taken things over. But once upon a time, Minnesota was seen as the home of supercomputing with uh, controlled data being located here and Cray. And so there was a great deal of computing that was going on mm -hmm. um, there. We have a sign that was sort of like a, a mock-up of a Minnesota license plate that says like the home of computing 1984. Um, you know, there were visions that, that Minnesota was going to be the next Silicon Valley. One interesting thing that I, I learned when the Lockheed Martin collection came here a few years ago was that there was a group of individuals working at an Egan plant for Lockheed Martin, which over the years had been a number of other companies, including I think Univac and, and Remington Rand. They'd been there for years and they were doing computing for decades, but they were working on defense contracts. So these are not the kinds of things that are widely advertised because they're secret. So there is, I think, a very strong um, computer history in Minnesota, but ultimately I think one doesn't need to have a special collection tied locally um, to any specific location. I mean, computing these days is a global phenomenon. And what you really want in a research institution is a location within an institution that is committed to long-term preservation and broad um, access to a wide variety of communities. And that's what the University of Minnesota and the libraries here can provide. That's wonderful. I think for many people listening to this podcast, their, the extent of their familiarity with Minnesota and computing might be limited to the Minnesota Educational Computing Consortium, MECC, which published Oregon Trail. Say, yeah, I was just about to say, this is why we're important. <laughs> Oregon Trail was like created here. Another book that looks at Minnesota's computing history by Tom Misa, the CBI director on the Research Center side, is called Digital State, and it really does examine the history of computing in Minnesota. So anybody interested could look that up. And also, the Oregon Trail has been added to the Internet Archive at archive.org. It's playable right in your web browser. And Jason Scott, one of the free-range archivists for that organization, reported that on average, Oregon Trail is being booted once per second. Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's fantastic. I mean, and the company actually produced a ton of educational games that actually, to date myself, I remember playing in school. <laughs> like there was this one about a fish swimming around in Lake Michigan that I don't, no one else seems to remember. I didn't but, know that one. Oh, yeah. Was that Odell Lake? Yes. That's that it. That was probably my favorite game. Wow. <laughs> I don't know. I really also like, the, you know, you could be a chub or you could be a sturgeon <laughs> or something. And, Just what you've always wanted to be. Exactly. <laughs> I just have a really clear memory of playing that on like an old Apple II. <laughs> well, now you can play it at archive.org. Exactly. I'm thrilled. So one of the other collections that the Charles Babbage Institute has is Social Issues in Computing Collection. 
You mentioned that CBI focuses on the history of the people behind Silicon Valley and the development of technology. What does social issues in computing look like beyond just the individuals who have created this technology? Well, I would just say, first off, social issues in computing is a, a collecting initiative that is relatively recent in the history of CBI. It was started in 2008. And at that time, you know, it was shortly after I had arrived here, about a year and um, I, did, I personally did not have a background in, in history of computing, so I, I took some time to get to understand what we collected. A couple of our very strong collections for a long time, I think, did tend to focus more on um, mechanical history or you know, the machine history of computing. Uh, the Controlled Data Corporation papers and the Burroughs Corporation papers where I think, I think we had a lot of researchers that did focus on the history of the mainframe computer. In 2008, it seemed like we had an opportunity to really try to expand the perspective that researchers could get about the history of computing by looking at it from a really wide array of perspectives. I won't go into the entire anecdote, but I had sort of an aha moment when it dawned on me that by focusing mostly on personal papers and corporate records of individuals and organizations related to the industry, that the stories that researchers could get were the stories that the industry was telling about itself. I think it's, it's in a testament to the success of the computer and the industry that you can say, you know, without hyperbole, that computing affects everybody today and almost every aspect of our lives. And so if you were really going to look at the history of computing, it seems that to have a, a broad view of it, you need more than just the story that the industry would tell about itself. So it started pretty much with, I would say, politically left-wing criticisms of the industry, expressing a lot of fear um, from socioeconomic and uh, political and war uh, impacts. And I think at the time, social issues and computing seemed like a, an easy catch-all. Um, I would say that very quickly the collection expanded to include every possible po political perspective um, on the, the, the spectrum. So we have you know, very left-wing materials, we have very right-wing materials, and everything in between. And it's gone on to look at, um, you know, not just criticisms, but also, you know, the hopes and dreams that different communities have about the computer. So I'd say it also goes from the dystopian to the utopian. And it, it, it moved on just wanting to fill in with as many voices as possible to include perspectives from gender and sexuality, race and ethnicity, and even religion and spirituality on any number of issues. So I would say I think that for us to be able to say today that CBI, you know, really goes beyond the machine, in part that came because CBI decided to start collecting in this area in a way that I think that was really unique. I did not see materials like this in, in similar collections. Uh, when I started doing research into this, I, I ended up finding more relevant materials in archives dedicated to labor history and women's history than I did in computer collections. So, I, I mean, I, I think that we actually we did find 
once we had our eyes opened to these other broader stories, we realized that there were a lot of materials already existing in the collections themselves that perhaps just hadn't been, you know, you, they just hadn't been seen. Uh, the National Bureau of Standards collection has a lot of great materials that talk about uh, a number of concerns about automation, for example. It's also kind of interesting to see like, how, it, as I've already mentioned, it's kind of like the historical narrative about the history of computing thus far has really been constructed by the companies themselves. So we have this idea of the technology being king and that there are these great men who are behind the technology, you know, like the, the personal computer would be nothing without a few people. Um, we would still be stuck in computers that were the size of rooms if it were left up to Minnesota supercomputing. Um, but what we're missing out on a little bit is this this story of like what are the untold stories here um you know not just from within the industry but within the community itself because i would say like the the computer industry and especially now when you look at gaming um and graphics and social media there is so much more interplay between the industry and the users than there ever has been ever before um, the level of customization and development that a user can do and how they can adapt technology that's created by the industry is almost limitless. And so it really would have been almost irresponsible for us to not take a look at some of the communities that are outside of the industry, that are outside of the um, of the stories that are just kind of told by the industry themselves. You know, it's it's looking for multiple perspectives. And I think it, it allows researchers to study and critically examine a complex history. And I, and I think the history is complex and, and it isn't the simple narrative that one can take away from, as Amanda says, you know, sort of this great man paradigm. You mentioned that these outside perspectives of technology can range from criticism to praise, from dystopia to utopia. And that seems, I think, fairly common that people have a wide range of opinions about technology and that the technology itself is fairly neutral. That in it, that itself is an opinion, that the technology is neutral. But the CBI website says that technology often seems neutral with perhaps an implicit sense that such developments are or were positive and that your collection may be trying to balance that out by showing that technology is not inherently neutral. Is that correct? I would say that's a pretty good um, set up. It's, it's kind of like that analogy of guns don't kill people. <laughs> people kill people. Exactly. So that, you know, and you can come, you can see there's a lot of arguments on, on both sides of that. So I'm not, I'm really not going to touch that, but it is similar to that. I would say that's an extension of what we're talking about here. Um, I think saying that technology or almost technology is neutral is kind of a false set up because technology is created by people. People make decisions to at, to create technology, whether they create it or not, and they make decisions about how they create technology. So Arvid mentioned um, the Edmund Berkeley papers. Edmund Berkeley back in the 60s and 70s wrote a lot. He was a very thoughtful person who wrote a lot about the social responsibility of technologists, whether they had one um, in the first place, and if they did, what was their code of ethics? What were they responsible for? What should they be held accountable for? So, you know, and it's really easy when you look at technology in isolation. So, 
at like the Living Computer Museum or the Computer History Museum and you see like this beautiful machinery and this really fancy technology to think about it in isolation. And it's easy in those situations to think about it as neutral. However, when you start looking into the development of, of the technology, so like a lot of iPhones are made in China with really different labor laws than those in the United States. So is that a morally neutral technology anymore? If you think about the decisions that were made um, in how to create it. I really think that we need, as historians and as consumers and users of technology need to have show, I guess, find some level of accountability within technology. It's not inherently neutral. You know, I think that um, there's a, there's a couple of, of levels to exactly. this discussion of neutrality. I mean, I, I, I do agree that there can be an argument made that a tool in and of itself, you know, can be used for good or for evil. You know, what, what you know, people argued about was rhetoric good or evil, you know, in ancient Greece. And they have, they've had the same conversations about, you know, various types of mechanization and, and automation up through and including computing. But uh, so we can go off on that tangent, but we can also <laughs> talk about there's sort of this sense of, well, if computing is neutral, then the history of computing is also neutral. And I think this is a false uh, sensibility. You know, I think that if you if you try to think of the history of the computer as simply a machine that somehow evolved through a natural and logical progression of steps, you fail to recognize that human choices were made. Yeah. And there are there are historians that that talk and criticize the you know a technological determinist perspective to history versus a, a human-centered uh, perspective. And that goes also to not just how you tell the history of computing, but how, how was the computer made? Um, I'm forgetting the name of the author, but there was a great author that talked about the impact of automation on the workers. And it wasn't just that this happened. There were people that made decisions. Some decisions could have been made that could have streamlined processes, but not had negative impacts on workers. But at some point, somebody made a decision to do that. And I think that couching it in terms of this theoretically cold, hard, logical, natural um, evolutionary approach divorces people from responsibility mm -hmm. and tries to shut down the argument that decisions could be made that value people as opposed to simply um, technology or the profits that go along with them. I feel like the argument between whether or not technology is neutral is one that is happening a lot in the video game space. For example, sometimes we argue in defense of artistic and creative expression that violent video games don't make people into killers and we should be allowed to create those kinds of games. And on the other hand, sometimes the same people making that argument, such as myself, are also saying that video game developers should take more responsibility for the kind of content they create by showing more realistic depictions of women or more diversity and representation in their casts. And it seems almost like I don't know how I am capable of holding those two opinions simultaneously. That 
developers can and should create whatever kind of games they want because they don't impact people, but they should make better games because they do impact people. Well, I mean, I think it's it is it's possible to hold simultaneously uh, contradictory or, or or seemingly opposing ideas, but I mean, I think it's I think it's good and reasonable and realistic to maintain a commitment to freedom of expression while still personally being appalled by some expressions. And I, I think that by promoting the opportunities for individuals who want to provide what I may think of as better representations of people, it doesn't necessarily mean that I have to shut down what other people do. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, hopefully, we can go back to our theory of the marketplace, that those those products that appeal to our better selves are going to um, inspire followers and users. And by virtue of the fact that we have talented, gifted video game creators who are also incorporating better representations of people, that those will attract the audiences. I said that would be my hope. Like Arvid, I would agree that it's entirely possible to believe in the freedom of expression and the freedom to design um, whatever you want. And, you know, but while also holding your personal opinion about what you would hope for the games and the game industry and the game makers. And what I'm interested in personally is probably the designer and developer point of view on this, you know, and thinking about where where is you know, where do they stand on that? Are they so far in terms of, free, you know, what are their personal motivations? What are the decisions that they're making and what are the factors that they're considering as they're making some of these games um, that, you know, may depict women or people of color in, you know, not necessarily the kindest way or, you know, are extremely overtly violent? What decisions and what motivating factors are they considering as they design those, you know, who are they thinking about as their audience? Mm -hmm. Um, Do they care? So for me, it's less of a, it's really much less of a, I come down this way or I come down that way. I'm interested in kind of the process that these creators are going through as they make these decisions to create these kinds of games. Well, I mean, I think that's an interesting point because I mean, somebody could be making a game that an individual or group or me finds offensive, but that may be their desire. That may mm-hmm. be their personal expression. But if they're doing it because it seems like the easiest, lowest common denominator approach to appealing to a community willing to spend money, in some ways, I think it's short-sighted. I think that if there's the, his- the historical experience that we know that a violent video game will sell to this community, and therefore, we have defined the potential community of video game buyers as those same individuals. It's failing to look at the potential markets for video games of other kinds among other people. And I think that from even a market perspective, it would make more sense for them to think outside the box and perhaps to try something that would appeal to, to other audiences. And I think we're seeing this to some extent you know, I've been doing some research on underrepresented communities in the history of computing, 
And, you know, one of the things that keeps coming up is, you know, can we can we hack Silicon Valley so that they're more representative of people? And I think that sometimes communities are just doing it themselves. There are a lot of people who young um, app designers um, from communities of color who, you know, are just making the apps that are valuable for people within their communities. So as far as I'm concerned, what they're demonstrating is that they have the knowledge, skills, ability, and will to create products that appeal to a market that the main, you know, the, the dominant market has chosen thus far to not see. Harvard, you mentioned that you've been doing some research into underrepresented communities in computing, and there have been some great stories told from those communities lately. For example, the recent movie Hidden Figures about some African-American women at, who worked at NASA in the 60s. Uh, there was the documentary about Grace Hopper, Born with Curiosity. So it seems like there's either a, a demand or a need to balance the history that we've been telling ourselves about these communities do you feel like there is some improvement and some acknowledgement of how diverse our history is? Or is our history actually not that diverse? And these documentaries are focusing on the exception rather than the rule. I think that there have been some steps made towards progress. I think there's a long way to go. I think that there are lots and lots and lots of stories that have not yet been told and that the industry and its history is as diverse as we suspect. I, I had an article come out recently that looked at, um, you know, where can one find sources for people who have not been represented in the history of computing. And um, I think what it goes to show is that, well, it's, it's a complex situation which has hidden these people. Um, from how the industry has chosen to treat, value women and uh, people of color. It, al it also has something to say about how um, the history of computing has, has seen or not seen the existence of these people. To some extent, it has also to do with the available sources that may or may not be found in the places where people go to look. You know, like I said, if we were if as a history of computing center, we were collecting what the industry was saying about itself and they were willfully not valuing their employees of color and therefore not documenting them and putting those materials into an archive, the historian going to that archive isn't going to see them and therefore come to the conclusion that they didn't exist. And as you start to write histories that write these people out of existence, it just becomes sort of accepted fact that they don't exist and therefore people don't bother to look for them. So I do think that there are, and just based on the initial research that I've done, we've seen evidence of, of many, many, many more people, um, you know, in the early 1950s and 60s and 70s, let alone um, the explosion of interest uh, in computing across communities today. And so I think there's still a long ways to go. And, and I don't think that um, that these these stories of, say, you know, the three women uh, featured in Hidden Figures are the exception. To be honest, I think if there's anything that is truly the exception, it's the narrative that we have been telling ourselves 
that computing, as Amanda suggested, is um, uh, you know the result of the work of you know one, two, or or a few exemplary you know white men. I think that the great man methodology of telling histories, which by the way you know seems to play well in Hollywood, but you know, entertainment is a big part of that and not necessarily simply the complex and messy history of, you know, truth. But I think with, when you focus on a great person form of history, it's not to say that those people didn't do great things, but it tends to obscure the fact that they were done in a broader context of the accomplishments of other individuals, of the support that they may have received from other individuals. And I think it even, to some extent, has the ability to make us think that their exceptionalism somehow undermines the idea of the exceptionalism of other people. And I think it can hold people to, to unfortunately, high standards. One of my concerns is that as I've looked at how opportunities in education and employment for women and persons of color you know, have been attempted over the years, they often hit these um, impediments where people say, well, you know, clearly from history, we've seen that women and people of color are not interested or they don't have the ability with things that I, I think are not true. But then they like try to compare them and say, well, you know, they try to compare a community of color, say, to Steve Jobs. And I'm sorry, it's, you know, we've never told a young white boy that you know, he may not be Steve Jobs, therefore he shouldn't go into computing. You know, the history of computing shows evidence of lots and lots and lots of intelligent young white men who were able to have challenging and rewarding careers doing those lower level, middle level, I mean, even high level, you know, but just not Steve Jobs, you know, this not a unicorn, yeah. you know, I mean, he's a unicorn. He's, he's, he's not... He's not the the I even hate to use the word typical because that that seems to undermine the value that real people add um, to the industry. And I think that if we were to understand history more from the sense of how did broad communities of people get education, get access to opportunity and the contributions that they made, you know, it would seem not so daunting when we decide we want to bring in people that to whom we haven't um, extended those opportunities. It's, it's a little bit like when you look at the past historical record and, you know, people go, oh, why aren't there more? Why don't we know about more women in computing or, you know, how these women in hidden figures? This is such a cool story. How do we not know about this? And it's this idea that I was talking about, of you know, taking some of these icons and taking them off the pedestals in which they've been placed and attempting to create a more holistic look at the industry and at the technology and all of the various moving parts and people who are responsible for creating it. You know, I guess in a sense, it's kind of like if our understanding of, say, Roman history only came through the understanding of the Caesars, you know, we'd, we'd have a much different view of Roman history and their contributions to Western civilization. You know, so so goes the history of computing. There's a lot of people that are forgotten. And I something else that I'm interested in, this is a little, little bit of a tangent, but I have a tendency to go down them. 
um, is that, you know, there's also a right of people to be forgotten. And that's also an interesting area for me to think about, because when you look at some of the marginalized communities within the history of computing, you know, there's something to be said for their desire to walk away from an archive or walk away from their historical legacy and have the right to be forgotten. And that's a personal choice that they may also choose to make. And I think as a rule that history in general is kind of dominated by the white cis male paradigm and their story and their narrative. Um, and at a certain point, you know, you start to wonder, like, is it, is it, how do you, how do you get anybody else in here? How do you find these people? And when you find them, they don't always want to be incorporated. There's, there's definitely some sense of disenfranchisement and bitterness and walking and willingness to walk away from it. I've talked to a few people who are doing so that I was hoping to kind of court as donors because they were doing some really interesting things with um, social justice activism and stuff and thinking about how they train next generations of activists to use technology to their benefit and also kind of to cover cover their tracks a little bit in terms of you know keeping things encrypted. And they use a variety of tools, um, software, apps, and games actually to kind of conduct these trainings. And I was, you know, I was really pushing to see if they would be interested in sharing their legacy with us um, and archiving their their records. And they just said no, absolutely not. They value their they value the privacy of the movements and of the activists themselves and are really not interested in contributing to um, what they see as kind of this monolithic white male construct of history staring them in the face. I think that's a really good point and it, and it goes back to something that I've thought a lot about as well. And that's when you are courting donors, you know, trying to get people into an archive. I mean, one thing that I've I've tried to be very acknowledging or upfront with people and, and to acknowledge is that individuals are complex and their archives tend to be specialized. If I've spoken to a woman of color who was a computer engineer about donating her archives, the truth is that there are any number of institutions in which her archives could be valued. They could go to uh, a college that she went to. They could go to an archive that has more to do with her uh, personal sense of identity and community as opposed to the history of computing. Now, as an archivist, you want to enrich the archive that you're supporting as much as you can. So, you know, I've, and I do believe this, I, I do believe that the history of computing will benefit when we get more collections in that do show um, the diverse communities and individuals that have contributed to uh, the advancement of of computing. That said, just because the materials are not in uh, a computer archive doesn't mean that researchers can't go find them. Like I said, when I was first looking into this, I often found materials in, in archives that were dedicated more to women's history or labor history. One of the the points that I made in, in my recent article was that although historians haven't been able to find materials about persons of color in 
the the often predominantly white archive, it doesn't mean that those stories aren't out there. Publications by communities of color have long talked about the the activities and contributions and accomplishments of their members within computing and other industries. It's understandable, but I think it's time for us to to get beyond the idea that if you want to to research computing, you will only find that history in a computing archive. Um, I think you need to look to what communities have had to say about themselves and their own perspectives. And that's that's one of the reasons why I think, you know, starting social issues in computing and trying to get external perspectives has has really, um, you know, opened up our eyes at CBI and the possibilities of you know, recognizing the value in a variety of, of, of source materials um, to tell us these stories that we, we wouldn't have seen before. Wow, that is a that is a lot to think about. Arvid, you mentioned a uh, article that you wrote for IEEE, I believe, the Annals of History of Computing. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. So that article would be race and computing, the problem of sources, the potential of prosp. I'm sorry. How do you say that word? Prosopography. And the lesson of Ebony Magazine. Uh, there will be a link to that in the show notes. I loved this quote from the abstract, which was, if computing has had little to say about persons of color, it may be better to examine what communities of color have had to say about computing. And that's what you've been talking about. There will be a link to that article in the show notes. There's another community I want to ask you about, and this will probably be one of the last topics we'll address on this podcast, which goes back to one of the very first exhibits you curated, Arvid, when you joined CBI. Back in 2008, you did an exhibit called Gender Bits, which explored how gender has shaped the professional identities and material culture of computing. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Um, yeah, that was the first major exhibit that I did at CBI. And that I think that really opened my eyes to a lot of things and helped shape my approach to um, the collections and the opportunities for these histories, because the collection... Uh, or the exhibition really examined sort of the history of the gendering of the profession throughout the 20th century. Um, and I, I say throughout the 20th century because the the collection, at least at the time, that had the oldest materials was the Burroughs Corporation, which started in the 19th century making adding machines uh, and then turned into a computer company over time. And one of the things that I discovered is, well, they have like 100 years of advertising samples in the boxes. It's, it's an amazing collection. I spent a week going through them. But you can go through them year by year by year. And so you can see how were they um, framing uh, their products and their potential. And one of the things that was very stark was that in the early 20th century, when men were predominantly the ones working in offices on adding machines, the, the value was emphasized on the skill of the man operating the Burroughs machine. Um, there were adding machine champion of the world competitions and ads uh, told the potential employers, hire that man because he knows how to work a Burroughs machine. Like this was a really valuable skill. And then a major shift comes along around World War One, mm -hmm. when all of the men are suddenly going off to war and women are, are filling the positions. And 
they, the ads don't continue the narrative of the skill of operating the machine. They completely turn it on its head and instead talk about how easy the machines are to use. And they go so far, there's one ad that says, even a little girl can operate a Burroughs machine. And it shows a fully grown woman, you know, professional woman who's, who's working here. But they, they refer to her as a little girl as opposed to a potential adding machine champion of the world. And you see this conscious decision to determine whose skill is valued and not valued carried on as the machines um, are become electric, become computerized, digital computers. And you see very conscious decisions about how women versus men should be trained and funneled into specific positions. And, um, you know, some of those same uh, decisions about how you even, you know, just redefine a term for a particular task or how you reevaluate it occurs as different communities get involved over time. So, I, I mean, I won't go off and, uh, onto it too much, but one thing that I'm, I'm seeing is a tendency from the 60s to today to sort of reframe computer programming as it moves from, um, you know, in the 1960s, there were really uh, strong desires to professionalize computer programming and to differentiate the training that white cis male computer programmers went through from other training that was available. There was a wide variety of doors open to people in the 1960s into the professions. Education was definitely growing and definitely one of them, but I think there were more opportunities for people with less specialized education to get their foot in the door back then than there, than there has evolved over time. But as we've seen initiatives in more recent years to teach young people, to teach women and girls, to teach communities of color programming, there's this idea that, well, it's just coding. It's not really programming. All, they're just they're taking somebody else's creative work and translating it into this mm -hmm. language. You know, even when you say, well, no, that's not what we're, we're doing. We're teaching design thinking. But there seems to be this continual attempt to wrestle away from new communities. Dumb it down. To, right. You know, to, to, to make it seem like what they're doing when they may be doing exactly the same thing as somebody who had previously been paid a lot of money. But they are they're recontextualizing it in a way that diminishes the value. Mm -hmm. It seems like the issues you're describing not only are go back almost a century, but are in, representative of all aspects of the computing industry, of technology, of whether it's a woman not putting on her resume that she knows how to use a keyboard, because otherwise she'll immediately be put in the secretary pool. But I'm wondering if there are aspects of this sexism that are unique or exacerbated in the gaming industry. We've seen a lot about uh, representations and treatment of women in gaming in the last five years especially, but it's been an issue for much longer than that. And even on this podcast, in previous episodes, we've discussed how Gamergate, for example, could be seen as a bellwether for issues throughout the industry and even in our politics, as seen by the recent presidential election. Are there 
ways in which gaming is unique in terms of the history of gender and sexism? Or, I mean, does it face the same issues except to a greater degree? Or how would you just make that comparison between the broader computing history and gaming specifically? It's interesting because I was thinking about this yesterday as, as I'm writing an article about our computer graphics collections. And, you know, I was thinking about some of the social issues and how they play out in the graphics industry as opposed to the computing industry, history of computing as a whole. And I was thinking like, wow, things are really magnified here in the graphics industry. And then I was starting to do a little bit more research about gaming and gaming industry. And it's almost like the issues that you see in terms of institutionalized sexism or racism like that are present in the computing industry are almost on steroids in the gaming industry. Just in terms of, you know, maybe not in terms of how many instances but in terms of publicity. And I think that I would, this is completely a hunch and it's uninformed, but I wonder if some of that doesn't have to do with the fact that gaming almost more than any other aspect of computing is so push-pull between a really um, strong user community and the industry itself. Like there's a lot more back and forth, I feel like between the user community within gamers and the gaming industry, as opposed to say, you know, like a Dell PC user and Dell. Like there's really not much back and forth there, but like there's so much social discourse and social dialogue that happens between these two communities. It's also like the most accessible form almost of, of, the, of the computing industry. And so I think mm-hmm. that you're seeing mm-hmm. a lot of things, you know, come through much more so so with gaming um, simply just because of that back and forth between user communities and the industry there's also so much more use of social media in the gaming industry and i feel like that provides that level of accelerant in firebombing that you really wouldn't see or you don't see as much in other aspects of the computing industry perhaps you know again i'm going to go back to like a, a guy who's like a big fan of of dell laptops there's no like user forum, user group forum. You don't see a lot of tweets about it. No, you don't see a or, lot of tweets. Or there's, they don't have Microsoft their, Word, baby. There's no dedicated YouTube <laughs> channels to like Microsoft Word or like fans and stuff like that. But I mean, so your your statement about Gamergate being something like a, a bellwether, I think I don't think that's inaccurate at all. And I would say it's kind of um, it's an exemplar of things that are playing out at a much at a much um, less publicized publicized level. I, I do think they take place within the broader context and history that we've seen. Mm-hmm. But as Amanda says, I, I agree. I think she's right on that it's um, it's intensified. And I hadn't thought about that, the connection that people have to the games as opposed to other forms of computer hardware or software. Yeah. And that, you know, this is something that people have more of a personal connection to. It's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's an entertainment form. It's a, it's a way of, of forming community. Yeah. And when people are in their personal space and their personal community space, they're more likely to aggressively defend or extend its borders. And regulate. And regulate. It's- and social media, we've, we've seen it in every element of life how how much it can really bring out 
both really great and really negative aspects of, of people. Yeah, short bursts that people want to get as much bang for their buck. And so we, we tend to... It's easy to fire off a tweet if you're not you're not saying it to somebody personally, right? Yeah. Or it's easier, like, in a, you know, in a, in a gaming scenario where it's a bunch of folks you know sitting in their sitting in their computer rooms or sitting on their laptop somewhere they're disconnected physically but they're connected electronically you know working together to create they, they've created a team they've created a community and created a family by playing the game together doing campaigns together and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but there's there's not that physical interaction that i think does have some element of and unfortunately control. I'm sorry, I don't mean to. No, go. I, I think that these stories do mask and obscure really great stories that are going on within gaming communities. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a Minnesota young adult author named Rachel Gold uh, who's written, um, I think she just came out with a, another new book, uh, where she writes young adult literature for um, uh LBGTQ uh, communities um, with with a strong emphasis on uh, trans trans communities and um, the role that gaming can play with being able to have people respond to your gender identity. Read her books. She 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 does a really good job of of presenting uh, the importance both of the the technology for individuals. But I think also the role that it can play in community formation. When I spoke with her a couple of years ago, she had a, a guild in is it was World of Warcraft that was people with a broad array of, of identities forming community. And I don't think we hear, and I'm sure that there are lots of different communities that form that are very supportive and nurturing. And it's not just a bunch of individuals yelling um, at people on Twitter. Um, no, absolutely. And we don't hear those stories enough, unfortunately. Exactly. We need to hear those stories more. It's really interesting what you said about access and identity of game developers. For example, back in the 70s and 80s, game developers were not acknowledged in any public fashion, not until Warren Robinette invented the Easter egg in Adventure for Atari 2600, and then until Electronic Arts started promoting its rock star programmers like Bill Budge. Compare that to, say, Final Cut Pro or Microsoft Excel. If something goes wrong with one of those programs, I don't know any individual I can blame. Yeah, there's, there's no one you can curse the high heavens right. for. <laughs> and, and so although you know EA, Bill Budge, Warren Robinette, they were all well-intentioned, I wonder if over decades and with the advent of social media, that has resulted in a outlet for all this vitriol that we don't have with many other media. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. I have a friend who actually works for a major software company, um, and he was pretty high up in the communications department. And one aspect of his job was being a moderator for um, some of their forums. And he had a lot of really interesting stories to tell about people that he had met through the forums um, and the relationships that they had cultivated with him um, in terms of hoping that, you know, some of their feedback on games would actually play into the actual, you know, the next evolution of the game and stuff like that. And he ended up developing a lot of really close friendships there. But he also had a lot of stories to tell about 
um, you know, just your typical forum type behavior that you've got that ends up getting squashed by squashed by the moderators in a you know negative way. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, his his stories were much more focused on the cool stuff that people were doing in these forums and how they're a bit, they're playing the games um, and developing these families was allowing the developers to actually spot errors and to create much better, much refined games Mm -hmm. going forward. So I think there's totally an element of this kind of push-pull between the user community and the company itself. There's one other book that I read, um, we purchased for CBI a few years ago that I just want to mention. Um, that I just found really interesting. I, I don't know how it fit, fits in with the uh, the broader gaming community, but it's called Rise of the Video Game Zinesters. And uh, the author is, uh, her name is Anna Anthropy. And what she talks about is, you know, in the same way that sort of the DIY movement has created zines over decades, as opposed to glossy publications, that there are ways in which individuals have used um, computer technologies to put together, you know, maybe not glossy games, but, you know, games in which they are able to still create the narratives that they want to see. And I think she does a really eloquent job of talking about the potential of games to to have a story, to have a narrative, to convey even a worldview in a way that perhaps a novel or even a movie can't because of it, the ability to interact, mm-hmm. to make choices within a world. And this idea that, you know, maybe you're not getting these stories from the computer industry, but as a creator, there are ways even, you know, they may not be the big, you know, glossy, lots of special effects uh mechanisms, but there are ways in which individuals can create their own stories through gaming. I just I just found that really exciting. Wow. So we have covered a lot of different aspects of the history of computing and video games and how different communities interact with and are represented in these media. We could continue discussing these topics for hours to come. In fact, I ran past you the list of topics I wanted to discuss on this podcast, and you actually suggested removing some because we would go on for hours and hours. Yeah, Arvid and I like to talk a lot, and yeah. we sometimes lose lose we, track of we, the thread. We get off on tangents occasionally. <laughs> yeah. No, those are wonderful because you never know what's going to come up. It's the unscripted parts that are the my favorites. But we do need to keep this to a certain length, so I want to ask you, for those who are listening to this podcast, what are some things that they can do to benefit the Charles Babbage Institute and your preservation of the history of gaming and computing? I think the first thing is is get in get in touch with me. You know, as I mentioned at the beginning of of our chat today, we don't have enough on gaming. It's an area that I really, really want to get into. And it's not one that we currently have a really great entry point. So I want to build up a network of people within the community. So people like you, Ken, and some of your other colleagues, um, just start learning about the different stories that are being told within the community. So, you know, what is the history of, you know, various games and who plays them and how has that evolved? I, as a I think it's become apparent throughout this. I'm really interested in the human stories and kind of fleshing out um, 
fleshing out the users as opposed to just the industry because I could go after Bethesda software company to get to get their corporate records but that wouldn't tell me I feel like as much about the gaming movement um, the gamers themselves and you know like just how far gaming has really permeated our society and I think that those are the really important stories that we can tell um, so yes I can go like you know like I said I can go after Bethesda software's records but that's not providing me enough of what I want to know and what I think could contribute most strongly to the historical record. So, you know, I would strongly encourage anybody to who's, you know, interested in either educating me about gaming and the gaming community and the gaming industry uh, to get in touch with me, or if they have materials that they think might belong in an archive, also get in touch with me. You know, I'd love to speak with people. I would also just throw in the caution not to undervalue materials that you might have. Talk to Amanda about what you have. One of the things that I noticed when I first started working with, um, uh, you know, even folks in the computer industry is that they tended to devalue their own materials. I mm -hmm. had one professor who just gave me his published books and told me that he'd thrown his files away because they were just handwritten. And I was like, well, I can get your books. They're available <laughs> in the bookstore. But, you know, it's it's the notes that you wrote to yourself, your diaries, the letters that you exchanged with people, photographs, mm -hmm. you know, those those things that you scribbled on and you crossed out and you decided to make a different decision. You know, these are the this is the story behind your experience and how you've developed something. And mm -hmm. I don't think people realize how valuable those things can be. Yeah, that's the raw material, I think, that that all, that we miss and that I think a lot of people kind of don't, uh, you know, people who donate things to us don't think are as important. You know, even stuff like for your podcast, if you were interested in archiving the series with us, we wouldn't just want this finished podcast, the, you know, post-production edition. We'd want to hear like this warts and all conversation that we've been having. So if I ever dropped an F-bomb or something, I would want that footage. The email correspondence, the email that, went correspondence that went along yeah. with it. You know, all of that stuff is, is relevant in talking about um, in talking about the history of gaming and the history of computing and some of these really interesting intersections between technology and culture. And how networks formed. Yeah. I met you through Arvid and Arvid met you through so-and-so. And I think, yeah, looking at some of these like little backgroundy things, I think, are the coolest. Well, I'm definitely going to have to apply that lens and re-examine what's in my own archive and also within larger communities. I am very active in the Apple II community. We have an annual meetup in Kansas City that we attend with dozens, if not hundreds, of people who have been developing software since the late 70s. And who knows what different versions or revisions they have, as well as the notes that they created in producing this software. I, mean, I certainly hope that people who hear this podcast are aware of that opportunity. And if they do have something that they want to reach out to you with, how would they go about doing so? Where would they find you or the CBI online? Well, you can find CBI online at cbi.umn.edu. You can also touch base with me via email. It's usually the easiest uh, at ab. Wick, W-I-C-K, at umn.edu. I'll include links to those in the show notes. Any parting shots you want to share before we wrap up? No, thank you for this opportunity to chat with you. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, and thank you so much for your time. Amanda, we've never met, and I really appreciate you 
you know, donating the time out of your workday to chat with me and Arvid, again, you have no current affiliation with the CBI and not all employees and their relationships with former employers well. And that here you are <laughs> right on their premises chatting with me for over an hour about all the good work that they and you have done. I really appreciate it. Well, I love CBI and they've, they've continued to be supportive as I've continued my own research and writing even while I've, you know, I, I never would have written about the history of computing at all before coming to CBI, and it's something that I've, I'm continuing even as I've moved on. So um, I love this place. Well, what's not to love? <laughs> <laughs> Great. Amanda and Arvid, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net. I'm starting to get to that rambling point.